Welcome again this morning to our time of worshiping Christ and making much of Him, seeking to have our own hearts refreshed as we exalt Him, making much of Him, and glorifying Him, and basking in His love and mercy towards us. And last night we had a blessed time as well, um, gathering here just a few hours ago to the entire church just praying and petitioning, praying for uh, our endeavors and missions, our endeavors in ministering the gospel uh, overseas, over borders, in our own backyards, and we had a, a tremendous time just praying here and pouring out our hearts and our souls to the Lord, and I know, I trust many of you as well, went home greatly encouraged. I know with my own heart, I, I, I realized last night more than ever that um, praying together, the result isn't just you know knowing that our prayers will be answered, but I sense greater unity, um, sense greater like-mindedness, sense being of one heart, one mind, one spirit. And so just to, it was a great joy to leave last night, just experiencing God's grace in that way, um, just praying with brothers and sisters, you know, sitting together, hearing their hearts' cries and hearing their petitions and knowing just how united we are in the Lord and how um, of like-minded we are. And it was a great, blessed time. And so we'll... We'll do more of that. We'll spend more time together praying and more time together seeking the Lord and praying and watching Him knit our hearts together. Before I begin this morning, before we begin our study in the Word, I want to ask of you, how many of you watch uh, cooking shows? All right. Thanks for raising your hands. First time. Okay. All right. Okay. Now, I want to ask you, you know, a lot of you raise your hands and I'm, I bet even more of you would have raised your hands if I asked you again, but what is it about cooking shows? What is it about a cooking show that is so captivating, that is so uh, drawing us in? You know, as far as entertainment goes, all about you, but you know, there's nothing to me entertaining about watching golf. And most of the time, I would I would put like a cooking show on par with watching golf on television. But there's something magical. Something almost profound. If you've, if you've ever watched a cooking show, if you've watched it long enough, you yourself have been profoundly impacted by what you were observing. Not that what you were watching was something incredible or phenomenal or fantastic, but somehow the chef, he is able to take everyday food and handle it and describe it in such a way that your mouth begins to water. You begin to salivate. And as you watch him working, you yourself get this urge to go into the kitchen and play Wolfgang Puck. Right? Somehow the, the, the cooking show, is, it's like a pagan sermon. It stirs up your inner man and, and causes even the male species to utter words like splendid and scrumptious and delectable. Right? If, if a sportscaster started saying things like, what a luscious shot or what a titillating basket, right? he'd be fired. But somehow a man can say those things on TV and evoke longings to watch cooking shows. I don't know what it is, but it's profound. But when a, when a man begins to say things that are about our greatest physical need, when he begins to address a man's greatest physical need, like food, and when he, he defines it and describes teriyaki chicken with words like moist or with phrases like deliciously sweet and sticky. 
our great hunger is aroused. And we then have a desire to meet that great need. I want to invite you this morning to the story about a meal and its preparation. I want to invite you to a story about a woman who thought she was preparing a meal for others. She thought that she was preparing a meal particularly for the Lord. But in the end, we will discover that it was the Lord actually who had, who had prepared a feast, who had prepared a meal for her. You'll open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, we'll study this morning verses 38 through 42. And the account of our story reads something like this. Now as they, that is Jesus and his disciples, were traveling, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Let's pray. Father, it is a privilege to come to the Word every Sunday to hear the Word of God unfolded, to hear the Word of God preached to our ears and to our hearts. And there are a multitude of topics, a multitude of aspects that our hearts constantly need to be nourished on and constantly need to be edified with. That in our sinfulness, we need to be reproved and rebuked and exhorted. And yet, Lord, I I imagine and I do believe that of all the Scripture truth, Our greatest need to be expounded always is Jesus Christ. And so I pray again this morning that as we open your word, that you would open our hearts, that you would unfold to us again and open up to us again the sufficiency and the supremacy and the sustenance that our souls find alone in Jesus Christ. So Lord, may your work be done, and may your word do its work in us who believe for our good and for your glory, we pray. Amen. Set the background a little bit, uh, if I can, of this particular story. Somewhat difficult to do in, in, in the aspects, in the terms of why has Luke placed this story particularly in chapter 10, or particularly where he has laid it out. There's not a seeming connection with the rest of what's going on here. It's not uh, in a setting where there's Jesus is preaching a sermon or giving didactic study or where he's teaching parables or where he's confronting the Pharisees. It's hard to, to grasp what's the, the greater context. But I think you will see that the main point of this story is very easy to see. And so this morning I want to run through the text. I want to give a brief explanation, somewhat of a survey and then I want to go back and unfold really just uh, some principles and some applications which come through this text to us. We see, first of all, that Jesus arrives here in the house of Martha. There are two sisters brought to light in this narrative whose names are Martha and Mary. 
We learn from John 11 that they also had a brother named Lazarus. And these two women lived in the village of Bethany. Bethany is about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And upon arrival, Martha welcomes Jesus and presumably his disciples into her home. We do not know how these siblings came into a friendship with Jesus, but we know the nature of it. John 11.5, in the story of where Christ raises up Lazarus, we read, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so we know Jesus loved this family, and we know that this family loved Jesus. And it is in this love that Jesus is welcomed into this family's home. Verse 39 quickly jumps now to, to Jesus inside the home as a guest of Martha. But now the scene focuses here upon Martha's sister, Mary. Few facts are known of this sister, but again we get a glimpse of her, her love particularly of Jesus, in a, in a future event that will take place in John chapter 12. There in John chapter 12, we read again of a similar setting, a similar context. Jesus is again in this same house. This is not long after he had raised up the deceased brother of Mary and Martha. And it's perhaps because of this action, perhaps because of Jesus' ministry to this family, they invite him back to their home in a, to give him a banquet in his honor, to serve him and to minister to him out of gratitude for, their, for him raising up Lazarus from the dead. Another significance of this meal, though, is that it is the last meal that Jesus will have with that family before he goes to the cross. And so John 12, 2 tells us that the men, along with Lazarus, they were reclining at the table. In those days, the dinner table was not three feet off the ground with chairs around it. The dinner table was very low. And you would, you would recline, that is, you would lie on your left side with your head in towards the table and the rest of your body jutting out away from the table. So the men would have been circling the table, looking somewhat like spokes on a wheel. And you would lie on your left side and you would, with your right hand, reach in to grab the bread or the food and then you would dip it into the paste and then you would bring it to your mouth. And as the men are lying there, as they're eating, Mary comes into the room. And she is holding what John tells us to be a a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard. It was a Roman pound. It would be equivalent to 12 ounces today. And we learn from Judas' response in in verse 5 of chapter 12 that he surmised the value of the perfume to be 300 denarii. And that would be uh, a year's wages back then. So a parallel today would be, it would be equivalent, if we just jump straight across the board, it would be equivalent to $50,000. Mary goes to the feet of Jesus, which are sticking out, and she takes $50,000 of liquid cash, and she begins pouring it out on the feet of Jesus. And then she kneels down, and she begins to wipe his feet. Now in Jewish culture, and they probably imagine it's similar in our culture as well. You don't touch other people's feet unless you're a slave. It's, it's very dirty and nasty and stinky to touch someone else's feet. And yet here this woman, as an act of worship and profound love, she kneels down, pours liquid cash on her Lord's feet, begins to wipe his feet, and not simply wiping it with a cloth or a towel, but she uses her own hair. 
her long, beautiful, feminine appeal, she takes that and she begins to wipe Jesus' feet. This kind of humble infatuation with the Savior, it should shock us. And it should cause us to marvel at the deep love that Mary had for Jesus. And though this event takes place at a further time than our story does here. It is that same woman back in our text here who is again sitting at the feet of Jesus and she is listening to the word of Jesus. Her heart is laid bare and she is sitting there with full righteous infatuation with what her Savior has to say. But interestingly enough, though it was customary for the rabbi to sit in a chair, which we presume Jesus was doing, sitting in a chair, instructing Mary and presumably the rest of the disciples. What was very uncustomary was for a woman to sit at the feet of a teacher. It was against the culture. It was against the grain. A woman's place, if you will, was in the kitchen doing the domestics, and any normal rabbi would have said so. But here, Christ is teaching This woman, and he is encouraging her to listen and be instructed by his word. And we see here again something of the love this woman had for Jesus, mixed with an absolute lack of concern of what others thought about her actions. This woman, this woman's love in this particular context, she loved the Lord Jesus to such a point that it must have made others uncomfortable. It must have made the the disciples uncomfortable to see this woman sitting so closely to Jesus, sitting so attentively to his word. And both of them here are committing a blatant faux pas and yet completely unconcerned with what others are thinking. The tense of the verb listening means either that she was continually listening to the master or that it was her custom to do so. A good paraphrase would be, who always used to listen to his word. And so we learn that it was the delight of Mary's soul to be near her Lord and to learn of him. She had a deep longing to hear the things of God. Hear this plain woman, this nobody, not known for her preaching, not known today for her radical service, not known in the scriptures for her martyrdom, but simply known for her deep love for Christ. In the Greek, the last word in the sentence is Lord. Luke does not say that she sits at the feet of Christ, at the feet of Jesus, but at the feet of the kurios. She is sitting at the feet of the Lord, the sovereign one, the highest of all rulers, the wisest of all men. And here at this lowest place, she is at her highest. Here at the feet of Jesus, she sits at the top of the world. But while Mary is delighting herself in the Lord, we move back to Martha, who's about to have a meltdown. Verse 40 says, But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. The most important word in this verse is the verb used to describe Martha as distracted. The verb serves 
as a really a word picture. It means to be drawn away in two directions at the same time. You could picture, if you will, a man who is tied to two horses, right? Hands tied at one end, feet tied at the other, and two horses going in two different directions, causing a great strain on that man's body. That's what's happening. That's what's taking place. That's what's going on in Martha's heart. It's being pulled apart. It's being stretched. It's being brutalized. The question we ask, though, is, what is she being distracted by? What is she being pulled apart by? What are the two horses? We know that she's trying to cook a lot of food, probably for up to 16 people, as she cooks for the 12 disciples, for Jesus, herself, Lazarus, Mary. She's frantic. There's a lot of work to do. No microwave. She's frazzled by all her work in this state. And, and in this state, she enters upon Jesus and upon Mary and upon the rest of the disciples. And she, she came in, the text says. The original language is even more forceful than that. Not that simply she strolled in, but more that she burst into the room. She came in to the room with the intention of making herself known and making her presence very clear and very felt. I hate to sound sexist, but there is a certain way only a woman can burst into the room like this. You can see her hands on her hips. She's got her apron on. She's huffing and puffing. She's waving her hands and pointing her fingers. She's got an air of pomp. She's moving sideways and forwards and backwards, and every fourth word is like. It's a way that only a woman can behave. And you're laughing because you know what I mean. But it was an explosive act. It was an explosive act followed by explosive words. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving? Then tell her to help me. I think you'll note as well as I have that we're all guilty of asking questions like this. We're all guilty of asking questions that they're not really questions. It's more of an accusation. She's not really asking what the Lord thinks. She's telling him what he should be thinking. And she's telling him that he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. And on top of that, she's telling him what he should do to make up for what he hasn't done. So she's not asking a question. Translation, Jesus, you don't really give a rip about me. What Martha really does is accuse Jesus of being inconsiderate. She accuses his actions as inconsiderate. But not only that, but she assumes that having explained to him his inconsiderate actions that he will most certainly apprehend the situation quickly and amend his and Mary's ways. And she assumes that Jesus, seeing things the way she does, will see the answer as she does, and he will then tell Mary to get in the kitchen and get on with it. But that's not what happens. Verse 41 tells us that instead, the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things. Now I'd ask, why did Jesus say this? We know that Jesus could have said any multitude of other things. 
He could have said, Martha, just calm down. Let's let's talk through your anger. Anger management here. Just sit down, have a Coke. Let's talk through this. Or he could have said, Martha, you're right. Forgive me, the Lord, for being so inconsiderate. In fact, I've sinned. I've sinned against you. I've thought more of myself. I've been more consumed with myself as this woman of faith is listening to my words. And I've been more consumed with myself and, and, and with her. And I should have been thinking about your needs. And I should have been thinking about how you're away slaving in the kitchen. Please forgive me. That would, of course, be blasphemous. Jesus keenly knows that Martha has been working hard. But he also knows that she has been growing increasingly agitated to the point of bitterness against himself and her sister. In light of this, he could have confronted her and said, Martha, your thinking is not right. If you were really doing your service for the Lord, you would have been thinking, what an encouragement it is to see my sister's love for the Lord. It's a great joy to me that she can sit at his feet. I'll keep working without complaint so that she can be encouraged and strengthened in Christ. Jesus could have said that, but that itself would not have been best. Our omniscient Lord gazes into the heart of this woman and he saw a greater issue. Jesus says her name twice, Martha, Martha. He's emphasizing his concern for her, a concern for her spiritual well-being, a concern that is in every way fitting of the chief shepherd. We must see here the work of the shepherd. He knows his sheep by name, he calls them to himself, and he is chiefly concerned with the state of their souls. He pinpoints, first of all, by saying, Martha, you're, you're worried. And, and the word, again, means to be anxious. It speaks really of the state of the inner man. But then he talks as well, not just that she's worried, but that she's bothered. And that term conjures up the external ramifications of the internal anxiousness. It's that he can see in her face, he can see in her appearance, with her words, with her huffiness and her puffiness, that she's worried and bothered by so many things. But Jesus doesn't confront her simply for these. He doesn't confront her for barging in or for accusing him. He doesn't confront her for her worry or her agitation. He goes to the heart of the problem. You are worried and bothered by so many things. He confronts here the heart of the issue, that is, priorities. The priorities of the heart. He is saying, Martha, you have allowed yourself to be overcome and run down by the tyranny of the urgent You have submitted your heart to the ruthless dictator of false priorities. You have succumbed to the lie that there are many important things in life. But not only does Christ get to the heart of the issue, but he immediately goes to the solution. Mary, this is your heart problem. But let me help you. You're bothered by many things. But only one thing is of necessity. What he is saying there is that there is only one singular need. In Christ's answer, he digs into Mary's heart and with a pencil, 
He X's out every single thing that is on her heart and leaves one. Himself. He brings the answer to her needs to the forefront. And instead of agreeing with Martha's assessment that Mary needs to get in the kitchen, Jesus graciously brings Martha, brings Mary forward as an example of one who has her priorities right. He says, for Mary has chosen the good part. In the structure here of the sentence, Christ first emphasizes the phrase good portion. Part or portion. And what he's doing here is he's contrasting Martha's portions. Martha, what she's preparing in the kitchen. All of the food, all of the meals, all the aspects that she is getting ready. And Jesus compares all those portions with one singular needed portion. That is of himself. And he says Mary has chosen the best portion. Mary has chosen, if you will, the main dish. Note the word chosen as well. The word chosen is that favorite of Christian terms used to describe God's sovereign election of sinners to himself. One dictionary says, The genius of this word has in it the idea of not merely choosing but that of choosing out from a number of choices. What that means is this. It means that Mary was faced with the same choice as Martha. Mary had been working. Mary, too, had chicken to fry, potatoes to bake, gravy to prepare, salad to toss, a pie to bake. And when there was a knock on the door... Mary was also faced with the same choices that Martha was faced with. Either to choose that which was good or that which was best. Either to choose that which was important to the body or that which was the primacy of her soul. And for Mary's choice, Jesus declares that right choice. It shall not be taken away from her. Jesus is gently saying, Martha... You want to take Mary away from what she loves most and from what she needs most. But I will never send my sheep away from me. That's a good overview of what's happening here. But for this next part, I want to study and take a closer look at what's taking place in these three people's lives. What's going on with Martha? What's happening with Mary? What do we need to learn about Christ? A first look at Martha. We ask, what led her to be distracted by so many other things? We know there's a storm that is taking place in Martha's life while Christ sits in her living room. It is amazing that most of the storms that rage in our lives as well, they take place in a domestic docile context. We, we speak much of the Christian warfare and, and the, the hardships and the trials, but the majority of struggles that take place, they're not on the front lines of Iraq. Right? They're not in some dark alley. They take place in the seemingly docile context of our own human heart. 
And it is in these seemingly harmless contexts where most of the storm rages on the the inside. We know that we can make ourselves look comparatively calm and put together on the outside, while inside we're being pulled apart. How often has an argument started when one spouse seemingly comes out of left field with a whole slew of arguments and the other spouse is is thinking, I thought everything was going great. Or who of you has ever heard of a divorce that takes place where one spouse just gets up and leaves and the other spouse thought everything was fine? We learn from this that the human heart is not so much a blazing fire as it is a smoldering one. For the Christian, most of our sins are not short-fuse explosions, but are rather from sin, longly festering in our hearts. While the world struggles mostly with explosive violence and rampant immorality and greedy gain and murder, the Christian struggles with bitterness, malice, and pride. These are the white-collar sins that are like blue cheese. The longer it sits in unobserved darkness, unnoticed and unattended, the more pungent it gets. And all the while, the external signs convey that nothing bad is going on until the lid is taken off and the stench is released. This is what's happening in Martha's heart. She opens the lid, and the reality and the contents of her heart spill forth. What was Martha's problem then? Just a few notes. First, there is a hindered discernment. There's a hindered discernment. King Jesus is sitting in her living room. Michael Jordan shows up to your place, Phil Jackson, Ron Paul, Bush, I don't know, shows up to your house, you drop everything, and you go to the living room, and you listen about slam dunks, and you listen about politics, you, you listen attentively. King Jesus is sitting in Martha's living room. He is presently the most famous man in Israel. And she's in the kitchen cooking. There's a failure to discern her priorities here. Secondly, there's a hindered conscience. Her conscience is falsely informed as to what her priorities are. And this has become a burden upon her to such an extent that in her conscience, it leads her away from Jesus and not towards him. In fact, her conscience is so malinformed that she has the gall to go in and confront Jesus over his wrong priorities. Thirdly, there is a wrong understanding of how Christ helps us. She wrongly presumes upon the Lord for his help. Instead of speaking to Mary personally and asking her to help, like a nag, she goes and gets Jesus and tries to sick Jesus on her. Now, how many of us are guilty of the same? How many of us pray the same way? How many of us pray, Lord, look at what they did to me. Are you going to let them get away with that? Did you hear how my wife talked to me? You need to go get her, right? Sick her. Right? Stick Jesus on my wife and it never works. Right? What happens is Jesus comes and gets me. And that is what Jesus does here to Martha. We often think that it is Christ who is on our side when the reality is that we have put ourselves against Christ. Though we cannot presume upon the Lord face to face, we presume upon him often in prayer and are astonished when he does not respond to us the way we would have him. This is what happens to Martha. 
Fourthly, there is a failure to assess priorities. We see that her motives and priorities were, they were out of whack. They were out of alignment. We can picture Martha running back and forth, diligently working, sweat on her brow, pots and pans or clay stuff, you know, clinking or whatever clay does when you clink it. Right? And she's working and she's serving. And she's, she's probably going back and forth and, and she catches the eye of Jesus and she's thinking, wow, Jesus must be impressed. Jesus must be thrilled with my service and my works. He must be seeing me in all my labors and he must be profoundly impacted. He will reward me greatly. How many of us bow down to other distractions all the while thinking it is good and right decision that the Lord is pleased? How often are we zealous for what we think Jesus approves of? But such confidence of the Lord's approval can only be assured if Jesus is our first priority. And so we see here the consequences of of Martha's muddled priorities. Because Jesus Christ was not her priority. Her heart was led to bitterness, resentment, worry, anxiousness, and finally hostility. But I believe, more importantly, it's safe to assume this. It's safe to assume that this incident was probably not the result of merely one day's struggle. It's probably safe to assume that it was her norm to have her priorities misplaced. It's safe to assume that it was because Jesus was not the priority before he arrived that Jesus did not become the priority after he arrived. On the other side, there's Mary. Mary's decision to abandon Martha and her duties was was not a flippant decision. This is important to grasp. It was a calculated, cost-evaluating decision. She had looked upon her duties. She had looked upon the slew of details and the cooking and the cleaning and, and all that she had done. And she calculated the cost. She was motivated by an earnest desire to be with her Lord and a proper estimation that the value of Jesus far exceeded the value of her labors. In the future, she is going to pour out some $50,000 of liquid cash on the feet of Jesus. This was not a flippant, irrational, passionate move like I am so guilty of so often. I remember when I first got saved, the first few years... In my seeming passion for Jesus, I pretty much abandoned everything else. I remember when I got back from my bike trip, my mountain biking trip to Moab. I put my bike in the garage and I didn't touch it. I didn't look at it for a year. And when I finally had the inclination to go out and take a bike ride again, I went to the garage and lo and behold, my bike was stolen. Another time I remember as well that you know, I, I grew up just playing the saxophone. And in college, I had practiced for eight hours a day, and I would listen to jazz. And I had collected somewhere up to a $1,000 jazz library of the, some of the greatest jazz in the world. And in my passion for Jesus, and in my, my lack of care and concern for jazz anymore, I gave all of my CDs away. I said, I'm not going to listen to these ever again. I don't need them anymore. Well, what's happened in the last couple of years is, I realized that was dumb. 
it, I didn't calculate it. It wasn't because I had this calculated, wise passion for Jesus. I just gave it all away, and now I wish I didn't. Now I wish I still had my Michael Brecker, Charlie Parker, Miles Davis CDs, because I still like jazz. My passion was not a calculated passion. But Mary's passion was a calculated passion. She knew exactly what she was doing when she poured that out on Jesus' feet. She knew exactly the duties that she was neglecting in the kitchen. She knew what it meant. She knew that Jesus and the disciples would have to wait longer until they ate. But her need overrode all other people's needs. She had one great singular soul need, and that was for her soul to be infatuated and satisfied as she sat at the feet of the kurios of her Lord. It was because Jesus was the priority to Mary before he arrived that Jesus was the priority to her after he arrived. And saints, this is what we must wrestle with. In order to have our singular need of Jesus met, we will at times, through our decisions, calculated decisions, leave other needs unmet. Like Mary, we must count the cost of devoting ourselves to our Lord and making sure that our need of Him is being met before we seek to meet the needs of others. This is what I would call a a sanctified selfishness. This is a calculated passion where you have calculated, you have scrutinized the cost of following Jesus Christ as he taught to his own disciples. You must calculate the cost of laying and building this foundation. You must calculate the cost of of building this house, of building this kingdom. And if you can't do it, don't start building it. Jesus Christ always teaches us to count the cost before we follow him. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, he teaches singles about the cost of getting married. He says to them, there's a cost to being united with a man, being united with a woman. There are practical, realistic implications. You will be drawn away from Christ in some ways. You will have to be less devoted to the Lord and more devoted to things of this world. You will have to be concerned about food and clothing and shelter and your wife's needs and your little ones. And this will, by its very nature, distract you from me. He doesn't nullify marriage. He doesn't say, don't get married. What he's saying is, you need to calculate the cost. There's a calculated cost of worshiping Jesus. And there is here in this text, there is a calculated cost that we make sure that our greatest singular need in Christ be met. At times, at the cost of everything else around us. And being that Jesus is our greatest need, I want you to see something of the Lord in this text as well. First, note the selflessness of our shepherd. Though he has entered Martha's house, most likely weary, most likely hungry, he's not looking for food. Most of us could relate to the person who would would enter and Gladly sit in the chair and gladly fellowship and gladly talk with with Mary. But in the back of our heads, there would constantly be, as at the same time, when's dinner coming? I wish wish Mary would maybe, like, I'm glad to talk to her, but maybe she could get in there and speed things up, you know, get the grub on the table and get on with it. We could talk over dinner, right? (laughs) But not Jesus. 
And this is what is profoundly encouraging. This is the king of the universe. He has every right to be served. He has every right to be the center. He has every right to be thinking that his needs are the priority and that his hunger should first be met. But what is most profound about this king of the universe is that he is more concerned about Martha's soul and with Mary's heart than with his own needs. We learn from this that we are not simply a means to Jesus' end. We are his end. He, he loves us. Jesus Christ cares for us. And Paul could boldly say that in Galatians 2.20, that Jesus Christ, he loved me and he gave himself up for me. Though Christ died for the greatest motive of all, the glory of God, what exemplifies God's glory is that Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. He came and saved not because he needed us, but because we needed him. And this is no more explicit anywhere than at the cross. Jesus Christ did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. To pour out his blood, to take his his kingly blood and his kingly life and to lay it down for sinners. Ungrateful, rebellious, hostile sinners. And he gives his life for them. And he says, I don't need you, but children, you desperately need me. And with that same heart and that same attitude, he enters into this house and says, I don't need your bread. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. My food is to sit here and instruct my children. My food and my joy is to see my children and to see in them their desperate need in me and for me to meet their need and to satisfy the needs of their souls. Secondly, we learn of the mercy of Christ's correction and discipline. The mercy of Christ's correction and discipline of Mary and of ourselves. By mercy here, I do not mean that he sugarcoats his rebuke. He doesn't begin by saying, Martha, I'm so thankful for your ministry and for your service. Thank you so much for bringing me into your home. But you're sinning. He doesn't do that. He doesn't sugarcoat. He doesn't patronize. Because he's not pleased. He's not encouraged by her heart. By merciful, I first mean that he is not angry, even though she has in fact blamed him. He is not harsh, even though he has been wronged by her false accusations. He doesn't get in her face over her great presumption upon God in the flesh. His rebuke is not so that he can defend his actions, but rather so that he might shepherd her heart. Though the Lord's confronting, through the Lord's confronting her anxieties and false priorities then, he shepherds Martha to the only green pastures she needs. Thirdly, we learn that Christ knows he alone, he alone is the greatest need. He alone is our greatest need. He alone is your greatest need. For you to tell any person that they're your greatest need, that's idolatry. For some man or woman for the, you know, that loves you, your wife, your girlfriend, 
says, I need you more than anything else in this world. They have just blasting God. They have, they have just committed idolatry. For a Christian to say such words is to set you, or for you to set something else up in contrast and in competition with Jesus Christ. But when Jesus proclaims himself as the greatest need, he is proclaiming himself as the center of the universe. And when he says this, he speaks absolute, 100% unchangeable truth. He knows that every knee will bow. He knows that every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory and praise of his Father. He knows that he is the center of the universe, through whom all things were created, and through whom all things hold together. When Jesus says that he is the singular need of the hearts of people, He is saying that he is the most important person in the entire universe. And yet he speaks all of this truth in love. A dictator feigns to love his people in order to use them as a means to his end of exalting his own self-worth. A dictator tells his people that it's good for them to let him stand on their backs and walk across them. He speaks of their loyalty to country, but they know he speaks only of himself. A dictator abuses the people and and lies with promising them that their royal labors will be met with reward. And the people know that he lies. But it is contrary to the heart of our good shepherd. The good shepherd truly cares for the sheep and he lays down his life for them. The Good Shepherd ministers to you and me, confronting us, helping us see the true priority and our true need in Jesus alone. He boldly places himself as the singular supreme need of all of mankind. And for him to to do anything or say anything contrary to that would be damning to us and blasphemous to God. Christ cannot be made second to anything precisely because he is not second to anything. He, by his very nature, is the supreme priority of the universe. And by directing our hearts to him alone, he directs us to the greatest singular satisfaction alone. And what profoundly affects us through this statement is that Jesus promises that this satisfaction and this singular need being met in him will never, ever, ever be taken from us. That is why our Lord declares in Matthew 6, it's unnecessary for us to be anxious about food, clothing, and shelter. It's unnecessary for us to be anxious about anything. A time will come when those things may not be in existence for us. But we need not worry. Because compared to Jesus, it doesn't matter. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You may lose food, clothing and shelter, but you have it all in me. That's why Hebrews 13.5 is so potent. In which the author says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you. I will never, ever forsake you. 
the author of Hebrews, he quotes Jesus, who himself said, I will never desert you. That verse sets up Jesus Christ as the supreme satisfaction in the universe. All discontentment or love of money or love of anything more than Jesus is a blatant idol. It's intolerable. With Jesus, all else is an eternally distant second. Apart from Him, everything else is lost. Martha, Martha needed to be reminded of this truth. Martha thought that she was serving Jesus, but came to realize that Jesus was serving her. Martha sought to provide bread for Jesus' body, but Jesus provided bread for Martha's soul. Martha's running on empty. She's running on fumes. She's laboring in the flesh. She's striving in her own strength. And we know that because the result was bitterness, anxiousness, envy, hostility. Saints, I imagine that every single one of you at some time or another, it was with absolute certainty that we have all been in the same boat. We have all found ourselves empty. We have all found ourselves burdened. We have all found ourselves having forgotten what is our true and greatest and singular need. We must learn that our need for Christ is not some cheese concoction made up by fluffy evangelicals who read Christian romance novels and watch a Left Behind series. Intimacy with Christ is taught here by Jesus Christ himself. It is not some mystical piety where you go out into the wilderness to find God, but it is found in prioritizing Christ through the simple pursuit of Him. Simply for us through the Word of God and prayer. These two simple yet profound privileges are still the most neglected and misunderstood in the church. And our thoughts on this will not clear up until we choose, as Mary did, to jettison all the distractions that keep us from our singular need. But how do we do this? I think it's clear what we need. But how can we do this? How do men, women, husbands, fathers, students, how do we, how do we take hold of this? How do we experience this? How does Jesus become the great meal that causes the power of our hearts to hunger and thirst and long to be with Him? How can we calculate our decisions? How can we calculate our decisions so that we can allow our passion to come out and so we can soothe and meet our heart's needs in Jesus? Let me begin with you men. And I'll say this, that no one needs Jesus more than you. No one needs Jesus more than you. I know your hearts and I know your needs because I know my own. I know what you struggle with because I am in the same boat as you are. Men, no one is more zealous. No one is more fervent. No one is more diligent. No one serves more. No one sacrifices more. No one labors more than you men. But at the same time, no one is more stubborn. 
No one is more prideful and no one is as self-confident as we are. And thus no one is more blinded to think that he is accomplishing much in the flesh while his lack of intimacy with Christ leaves him with a withered and bittered soul. So men, if you, and I imagine you do, have an insurmountable amount of work and ministry and labors, here is your opportunity to calculate the cost. Here is your opportunity to meet your heart's needs. Are you spending time with the Lord daily? Are you seeking after Him? Is pursuing the Word in prayer not just simply a daily duty or a daily discipline? But do you see your own need? Are you spending time with Him before work? And if coffee isn't working anymore, are you spending time with Him at lunch? Or do you take time yourself alone when you get home after dinner. Brothers, I, I would simply push you to this very basic and elementary of all applications. And that is, you must make Jesus your supreme need daily. You must do whatever you must that your heart can meet Him and be with Him. The kids are down. Direct yourself and direct your wife to, to personal times with the Lord, to personal fellowship with the Lord. Allow yourselves to read and then, and then come back together and to share your hearts, to share what God is teaching you, to encourage each other, to talk and to pray. Moms, I speak to all women here, but I, I, I just speak particularly this morning to moms. No time to fulfill your need of Christ because... The little heathens have gathered around you and they've lit a, a circle of fire and they're chanting. Right? We know that you must calculate your time carefully. It's easy for me to say, get up earlier, right? When the kids are already up at five, right? They're up before you are. They're pulling you out of bed. They're handing you your coffee. Mom, you look horrible. Here you go. But, moms, you need Christ. You need to spend time with your Lord and with your Savior. And so, steal away what time you can. Keep the TV off, if you're tempted to do that before. When you have that brief moment, even if it's a brief moment when the kids are down for their nap or when they're reading, they're quiet. Spend time with the Lord. Let your children... Know that you need Jesus more than they need you. Let Tell your children, shepherd your children, share with your children that mommy needs to spend time with Jesus. And, and instruct them to sit quietly. It may take a, some time, it may take a few weeks, it may take a month, but it'll happen. Teach them to sit still and, and let them see you fellowshipping with Christ. But husbands, I would add here that it is chiefly your role to shepherd your wives in this way. Many of you, all of us, have been blessed with a godly and diligent wife. She is constantly laboring and serving, constantly cooking and cleaning. She is a Martha in the very best sense of the meaning. But as you know, her work is never done. The cleanup is never done. 
The kids are never done being taken care of. There is always more work to do. And you know as well as I do that our wives' hearts can become bothered and anxious about so many other things. So man, it's your role to shepherd your wife. It's your role to be discerning on her behalf. It's your role to tell her no more. Done. Don't touch the dishes. Don't touch a diaper. Go get your Bible. Go on a walk. Man, it's our responsibility to free up our wives and help them. When we come home and after dinner or whatnot, we can do the dishes sometimes. We can, or all the time. We can put the jammies on. We can put the kids to bed and say, honey, I want you to spend time with the Lord. And she says, no, I have it. No, spend time. Just spend time with God. Free your wife up. Shepherd her to the Lord. Push her to need the Lord more than she needs to finish anything else. You must help your wife cultivate a relationship where you can clearly say that her need of Christ is being met. Push your wife away from you and your family and the world and push her to the feet of Jesus. Singles. Do you know that God has ordained your present singleness that you might experience Christ in unique and specific ways? 1 Corinthians 7, in Paul's text on singleness and marriage Singleness is not just so that you can serve marrieds more, right? or you can serve your church more. Yes, that is an end. Yes, serving Christ. But not just serving Him, but being devoted to Him. Being near Him. And so you must be exacting and calculating in your passions and your pursuits. You must learn to cut out all the superfluous things and jettison out all that is distracting you from being absolutely devoted to the feet of Jesus. My prayer for you is the Lord would grant you a fresh vision to see that Jesus is not a taskmaster demanding you to serve him, but he zealously longs to serve you and for you to rest in him. That is his heart as a shepherd. Finally, I speak now to the leaders and the flock shepherds of our church. Are you overwhelmed by ministry? I think especially of you flock shepherds. Working all day, coming home to your wife and your children. And on top of that, having almost full-time ministry to handle and to deal with. Are you overwhelmed? Do you fear your ministry is becoming ineffective? Do you have more ministry and more responsibilities than you have time and strength? Then know, again, the Lord is testing you. He is testing your priorities. He is testing your thinking, your discernment, your decision-making. Do you want to get it all accomplished? then you must first believe that your accomplishing all tasks is not your greatest need, but that only one thing is necessary. See, Martha, Martha was a diligent woman, but she wasn't a desperate woman. She was a woman of of high capacity like all of you. She was a woman who could accomplish much like many in this church. But her flaw was that she could not see her singular need. Mary didn't choose Jesus 
because she was so godly. She chose the good portion because she was so weak and desperate. And she experienced the profound joy of having her needs satisfied in Jesus alone. I've been a believer now for ten years. I have continually faced the ardent battle of seeking to faithfully abide in the word of God in prayer. There are, of course, seasons when there is more hunger and thirst to read. But I find that by the grace of God, I'm brought to my knees more and more, not out of discipline, but out of need, out of desperation. I have looked back over my shoulder and seen the little I have accomplished in my own strength. I look back with shame and even look upon my present life with shame and see that I fail so often out of the simple fact that I seek to accomplish what I'm doing in the flesh. As my life piles up with more responsibilities, more children, more ministry, more decisions to be made, I become so overwhelmed. And so often I'm slashing and hacking and chopping away with a dull axe. Ecclesiastes 10.10 is fitting for us leaders, for you men. It says, if the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. There is a need to be sharpened. And that sharpener is Jesus. There is a time to put down the axe in humble acknowledgement that you're swinging hard but accomplishing little. And the wisdom that has the advantage of giving success is to know that our need will be met in Christ and in Christ alone. Just listen closely to these last words. Effective and powerful ministry is not through quantity but through quality And that quality is fueled by communion with Christ. The best ministry is done through putting your need of Jesus above all others' need of you. So my prayer this morning, leaders, flock shepherds, husbands, fathers, men, women, is that you this morning would be impacted by this and freed up by your singular need met fully, effectively, and sufficiently in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God, we bow before you with fresh desire to sit at your feet to learn of you And to marvel that you are not just asking of us. We do not negate that you demand our life. We do not negate that that we must serve you. That we must lay our lives down. That we must wear out this earthly mantle. That we must labor in blood and sweat and in tears. That while it is day, we must labor. We must be sober. That we must be aware of the days because they are evil. And we must make the most of the time. We must seize this Kairos opportunity to live everything and to lay down everything for you. But we must never, ever forget, and I pray that you would help us not to lose sight, that before you need our service, we desperately need you. We need you to strengthen us, encourage us, correct us. We need you to counsel us and strengthen our feeble hearts and our feeble hands. 
And that, Lord, that we would not become ministers so much of quantity, but that we would become servants of quality, a quality characterized by men and women who are devoted to the singular duty of dining and fellowshipping and communing with you. Oh, Lord, we thank you so much again for this day, for this church. We thank you so much as you constantly, Sunday after Sunday, bring the gospel into focus. And not simply a set of doctrinal truths, but a true and living, eternal being. Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth. Lord, we thank you that you have reconciled us to yourself. You have reconciled us. You have befriended us and united us to yourself. And when this earthly mantle is rolled up and we breathe our last, we will not simply go to heaven. We will not simply marvel at streets of gold. Lord, we will be satisfied to sit at your table and to dine with you forever. So thank you again, O Lord, for correcting our priorities. May we go in your grace and in your mercy. May we go with renewed affection and desire for you. Because you have great earnest affection and desire for us. In your name we pray. Amen.